You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by the generous support of fans just like you. Find out how you can support the show and get access to exclusive content, merchandise discounts, and more at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. If you want to learn even more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book at cacpodcast.com slash book, or check out our Curious About Cannabis online courses and educational events at the Natural Learning Academy at learn.naturaledu.com. My name is Bryant Mason, and I am with Soil Doctor Consulting. I'm a certified crop advisor that specializes in soil and crop nutrition for cannabis growers, both indoors and outdoors. We must work untiringly so that our children are obliged, obliged to learn the truth. Because it is only through knowledge, knowledge, knowledge that we can safely protect them. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey everybody, this is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today I'm really excited to uh, be connecting with someone I've been following for a while that um, is all about getting down and dirty with soil. I'm here with Bryant Mason, aka The Soil Doctor on social media. Uh, Bryant, thanks so much for being willing to come on the podcast today to talk about all things soil. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk more. Absolutely, yeah. Um, to give people a little bit of context, I, I mean, you've been doing the soil doctor thing for a few years now, right? So if, yeah, that's right. I think two or three years I've been working on my consulting practice. Yeah, because I feel like I've been following your content for at least a year and a half or so. Um, I've always enjoyed your approach because a lot of people, especially in the cannabis space, talk a lot about... Um, you know, how to approach soil health. And there's a lot of hype around the concept of like living soil and we can get into all of that. But um, one thing I always appreciated about your content was a focus on identifying tools that allow you to capture data to make informed decisions about how to handle your soil. And so at, coming from an analytical science background, that always just really intrigued me. So um, yeah, super stoked to talk. And uh, do you mind giving folks that may not be familiar with the soil doctor uh, a little background on um, kind of how you got into this? Because you have a really interesting background as well and uh, some other work that you've done in Colorado, um, like urban farming and stuff. And um, so just take a few moments just to kind of uh, chart the, uh, the path from uh, where you've come from to where you are now. Yeah, great. So my history is a little bit circuitous, but it all re revolves around horticulture and soil. So in 2012, I started a business in Colorado called the Urban Farm Company of Colorado, and we installed backyard organic vegetable gardens in raised beds and taught homeowners how to grow their own food in their backyard. So we would install these four by eight raised beds in Denver and along the front range of Colorado. And over about five years, I think we installed three or 4,000 gardens. Wow. And during that process, uh, I was growing this company, which was really an edible landscaping business. And we had to fill these four by eight foot beds with soil because we were controlling the spacing and the crop type. And we were controlling all the variables we possibly could. And soil was one of the most challenging ones because there was this question, what is the ideal soil for a raised mm -hmm. garden bed? So I went down this rabbit hole trying to figure out what makes an, an ideal soil. And specifically, a, a, a soil mix, a blend. So um, fast forward, Amendment 64 was passed in Colorado several years later, which legalized cannabis. And um, I, was, I was very interested in that. So I started growing. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to spin the urban farm company into a, a company that could help home growers plant six, of, six legal plants in their backyard. I didn't end up launching that business, but... I got really interested in cannabis as a crop and what soil requirements cannabis uh, had. So I then moved to Oregon and I was working um, for another soil and crop consultant. I was working in uh, orchard crops and mm -hmm. um, a number of different crop types. And all the while, I've, I garden every single year, just vegetables and, and backyard cannabis. Um, and... I was getting more and more obsessed with soil chemistry and 
and the ideal soil. So that never left me, even though I ended up selling the urban farm company um, several years ago. And so I ended up getting to the point where cannabis was proliferating and still is. States are still coming on board every year. And it seems at least. And um, I, I realized that there was this huge demand for cannabis growers who are trying to figure out how to optimize yield and quality. And that second piece, quality, is really interesting to me because there's a lot of crop types like corn, soy, um, alfalfa, wheat, a lot of crops that are, are commodities. And so yield is really the primary metric for growers. Well, um, in high value vegetable and fruit production and cannabis production, similar to something like wine grapes, quality is probably the most important metric. And when you open up that door, there's a whole uh, sort of world of, of interesting things that you can focus on from a nutrient standpoint that can improve crop quality and not just yield. So anyway, that sort of captured me. Um, the plant is interesting to me, the, the, the botany, the history, and the fact that this is a totally unopened box. There's not a lot of research on it. Um, and here I am today, I've worked with, uh, probably about 400, uh, probably 300 cannabis growers over the last several years, really helping them optimize their, their soil mixes and production outdoor as well. So, uh, I'll leave it at that, but that's, that's a brief history of how I got into this. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, super fascinating. I mean, I love the, uh, to shoot back before pre or not sort of pre cannabis, but the, the urban farm uh, thing, I it, on the side when I'm not teaching about cannabis and and doing the analytical science stuff. I mean, um, that's something I am very very passionate about. How do you get more people involved in in cultivation and edible edible gardens? That's my garden's fairly wild, but almost everything in it is edible. And so one thing that I always loved was I was like, I want to cultivate something my daughter can walk through and just kind of grab things and munch on. And, and sure enough, we're sort of at that stage now. So I, I just, I particularly appreciate uh, where you're coming from there. Um, and uh, I, I didn't know you jumped over to Oregon. Are you in Oregon now? No. So the, the, Continuation of that story is from Oregon, I actually moved back to Colorado to okay. uh, a little town called Paonia. And we, my wife and I landed on this place because of the, it, it's, it's such a wonderful place for desert fruit production. So we're mm. starting a, a peach orchard um, out here. And it's just in this interesting little microclimate where the diurnal temperature swings from morning to, to night are, are really great, but it, it's warm enough where it doesn't kill the the peach buds in the spring. Yeah. Um, but you get these really, it spikes the sugar content when the temperature goes from really warm to really cold ah. at night and that's in the high desert environment. So it's a, it's a cool, it's called the North Fork Valley. It's a really interesting area of Colorado and we've relocated here um, to work on this orchard. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I was going to say, if you're still in Oregon, I was like, Oh man, I should have, uh, I should have tried to hunt you down. Um, well, that's really fascinating. And to, to dive into, I'm sure what a lot of our listeners are interested in us to, to get into is uh, what were some of the, I guess, early learning lessons that you ran into when cultivating cannabis and trying to think about as a unique crop, what are its needs and what you touched on, what are the aspects of soil nutrition that are affecting quality and not just yield? Um, I guess when you were starting out early on, what were some of the, um, I guess, uh, kind of speed bumps you ran into? Yeah, sure. So, um, the first thing that comes to mind is just the heavy feeding nature of the crop. So, mm. um, you know, if you think about vegetable production, there are, there are light feeders and heavy feeders yep. and cannabis is, is not only on the, on the heavy feeding spectrum, it, it, it you know, blows past even a tomato. And so I had to adjust, uh, for the first couple seasons when I was amending the soil, like I would for a pepper or a cucumber, or a tomato, realizing that in outdoor full-term production, the nutrient uptake is so significant, um, that I really had to sort of adjust my, my rates. And that's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about it, but I suspect part of it is just the nature of the, the underlying 
genetics of cannabis, but I also suspect that some of it is about breeding because the plant has been bred for literally thousands of years. And in the last, um, in the latter part of that breeding period, I really suspect that the, the plant was being cultivated indoors in high nutrient, um, environments. And that was, that has probably, um, in some way changed the genetics and therefore I'm seeing cannabis just respond to to much better uh, or much higher nutrient concentrations. So that's the first thing. The second thing that um, is for a while, I was convinced that the market for cannabis production was going to very quickly gravitate toward outdoor production mm-hmm. um, because of the lower cost of production and the yeah. easier nature of pest management and disease management. You don't need lighting and energy and electricity and CO2. And I was seeing just enormous yields in my garden, um, literally amending the soil heavily, walking away, maybe top dressing or feeding the plants once later in the season. And that's been an interesting thing that I've learned is that that industry has actually gone in the opposite direction where um, growers are are mostly moving toward controlled environment and light deprivation greenhouses where they're able to turn three or four rounds per year. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting from like an environmental perspective, like you said, you would, you would expect that the market would move towards lower energy demands and that sort of thing. Um, and I, I was under the same impression too, just kind of being a naive, uh, you know, sort of like environmental scientist. I thought, you know, Oh, surely, especially like here in Oregon, um, we would, and and granted where I am in Southern Oregon, you do see a ton of outdoor cultivation, but there's also just more and more and more and more indoor cultivation, especially as people are trying to get uh, some level of predictability out of their cultivars. Um, they're moving towards towards that. But I, I've witnessed the the exact same thing, and, and the light depth has, has become really kind of standard practice now for greenhouse cultivation of cannabis, I've noticed. Yeah, absolutely. And Jason, where are you in Southern Oregon? Um, I'm out of Medford, so okay. uh, just right in the heart of Southern Oregon. Yeah, so I was actually living uh, right outside of Ashland for oh, yeah. a couple mm-hmm. of years. We're not, so we were in the same neighborhood, and I know the Southern Oregon um, area very well. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's one thing. To go back to that question about what else I've learned from a nutrient standpoint, there are a number of different um, – yeah, there's a number of different techniques – that you can use to increase quality. Um, and mm-hmm. I cover this in a new course that I just launched called Become a Cannabis Soil Expert, where there are definitely certain nutrients that can be driven harder at certain times of year um, or in, in the plant's growth cycle that can improve um, flower quality. And the, the two that come to mind, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, there's a number of rules of thumb and, and interesting approaches, but the the calcium potassium ratio, which exists not only in cannabis, but let's say in apple production as well, is a really important and interesting, very nuanced uh, relationship between two cations, which are positively charged um, ions that are plant nutrients. And uh, so I've seen a lot of interesting results um, in that regard in, in terms of that calcium potassium ratio. And then the second thing I'd mention is um, there's a lot of microbial products and teas and ferments. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd say the cannabis industry in general has really gravitated toward a very biologic, biological forward approach, which I really think is great because it's in general, I'd say it's been a sort of neglected leg yeah. of the soil science um, stool over, you know, over the last hundred years. The issue is it's really tough to measure. It's really tough to manage with precision. Um, and so I'm working on trying to uh, sort of control variables and actually differentiate the signal from the noise in terms of microbial products, because there's no doubt um, with a few growers I've worked with that I see certain microbial treatments working very clearly. Um, I also see the opposite more times mm-hmm. than not. So yeah, I mean, those are just two things that very specific things that I've learned over the years in terms of the the management of quality versus yield. Yeah, absolutely. And and I can, um, I have had very similar experiences. I've seen um, microbial inoculations and compost teas and stuff work really, really well for a handful of grower friends that I know that have been doing it a long time and have kind of figured that piece out. And I've also seen 
people waste a lot of money, a lot of money and a lot of time and energy uh, kind of chasing the, um, and I'm, I'm not trying to like give this a bad name, but the living soil kind of movement, like really trying to harness that. Um, and so it's, yeah, I think it's, you're right that it's a very underrepresented area of um, horticultural research in, in general, not just in cannabis, but in general, how do we uh, take advantage of microorganisms and there's so much we don't know i remember when i was in grad school i was working on putting together a uh, research project around just looking at um, microbiological associations of native plants and how you know invasive change you know some of those um, um, uh, um, different types of uh, fungi and bacteria you might see on the plant roots and that sort of thing and and even just in some of the basic research that I was scoping out, there was so little that was known to make informed decisions in regards to like greenhouse experiments and how you might, you know, what I w would want to look at. It felt very much sort of like starting largely from scratch uh, to try to understand some of that. And then something you point out a lot in your content is that, uh, and this is one of the main things I want to talk about is the concept of soil health, that soil health is a unique thing per crop. And it's not just sort of like a unified thing that you figure out how to make good soil and then you grow whatever you want um and so then thinking about like you said the stools um you know, the biological side um the sort of like inorganic amendment side you know all these these different pieces uh you start to kind of reveal these layers of complexity um that are involved in this project yeah absolutely yeah so soil health is an interesting term it's an interesting topic i've yeah. gotten more and more heavily involved in trying to sort of unravel the complexity of what you're talking about, but also just trying to come up with a, a uniform approach. You know, I offer, I start with all growers what, with what I call a, a full soil audit, which is really just um, a number of different nutrient analyses that go beyond what a standard soil test would. So I'm looking very heavily at the, the chemical side of soil. So there's the biological side, the chemical side, and the physical side. They're all connected, but it's helpful to think of them in three different, you know, as those three different uh, legs of the stool. And so I start with that, that chemical side in what I'm term, what I call the, the, the soil audit that growers order off my website, because that gives me a really good understanding of not only the, the nutrient capacity and the nutrient flow and availability and mm -hmm. all of these different things, but I can also start to see um, some of the, I can start to interpret or extrapolate some of those physical characteristics from what the chemistry looks like. So anyway, to go back to soil health, it's interesting because um, it totally depends on how you define soil health. And in the, in the general agriculture world, really, it's just the ability for soil to, to continue to produce um, crops into the long term. So that involves erosion. Um, it involves, involves um, soil organic matter. And really because of, you know, humanity's necessity to draw down carbon, um, a lot of people have really honed in on soil health being synonymous with um, soil organic carbon. Yeah. Um, in the cannabis world, though, it, it seems to be more of a, like you said, living soil definition. So how biologically active, diverse, and abundant are the microorganisms in the soil? So how I look at it... Um, is not very different from the old term that the, the National Resource Conservation Service uses, which is soil quality. Yeah. And I think soil health and soil quality are similar. And when, I th when, you, when you use the term soil quality, you start to think about um, it's, a, it's a holistic definition of, of chemistry, biology, and physical structure. And so there's a number of actual cultural practices that, that growers can use to improve soil health. Um, inputs are actually absolutely a part of that equation because if you continually continuously crop cannabis year after year after year without heavily amending the soil, what you're doing is actually mining the nutrients, right. the mineral nutrients out of that soil. So that's that's a component. And then um, finally, biology is a component, and the cultural practices absolutely influence the, the soil biology. So there's there's nuance to each one of those categories, but I would argue that. Um, if you just take a biological approach, you can actually deplete your soil extremely quickly. If yeah. you're just focused on the, um, the, 
the let's say uh the characteristics of soil that are physical in nature the structure Mm -hmm. um and you're you're obsessed with no till or you're obsessed with tillage for that matter you can be neglecting other elements of it so soil ultimately is a is a sort of diverse organism and the other thing i'd mention is in most cannabis growers are are cultivating in soilless media which isn't actually soil it's a it's a soil composed of peat moss or coca core uh, an aggregate like pumice or volca- volcanic rock or rice holes and compost. And there's no sand, silt, or clay. So a lot of this research that I'm learning around soil health and the techniques and practices to improve um, soil health are questionably applied to soilless media. So anyway, it's a complicated world. And there's not, in my opinion, a great understanding um, of, of or, or at least definition of soil health. So that's something I'm, I'm sort of working on and picking apart slowly. Yeah, no, and it, it's, I think it's really great to, you know, highlight just how complicated of a concept that actually is and that it, yeah, it relates to the crop. It relates to how the style that, you know, you're wanting to cultivate in. Yeah. Are you actually cultivating in soil or not? Um, right. It, it, it really starts to spin out. Um, but going back to, you know, what you're talking about with your soil audits, um, you know, so when someone comes to you and they're wanting to try to dial in their soil, assuming they're actually working with soil, um, and optimize it for cannabis, uh, what are some of the things that you kind of start to clue into first to try to understand kind of what they're working with as a foundation? Yeah. So that's a great question. So the first thing I look at, so, so what I do, what is included in a soil audit is a standard soil analysis. It's it's called a malic three, which uses a strong acid to extract all of the, the theoretically available nutrients from the soil, whether it's a soilless media or a topsoil, um, this test is run and it, the malic three is a pH of 2.5. So it's supposed to replicate the most acidic, uh, environment that you would find in soil and see what's theoretically available. So I think of it as sort of the bank account of nutrients. Yeah. And the other thing it includes is a, is a test on the same soil um, called a saturated paste analysis, which combines the soil with uh, ideally your irrigation water. And it just uses your water to extract the soluble, immediately available nutrients that are, a bit, that are in the, what's called the soil solution or the water in the pore space of the soil. And the reality falls, the reality of nutrient availability likely falls somewhere in between. And in the case of soilless media, I would argue that it falls much closer to the end of of solubility or that saturated paste report. So that's just a little bit of background on what I'm looking at. The first thing I I immediately look at is the organic matter, which is on the, the standard soil test. And I'm looking at um, if the organic matter is above about 10%, I know it's a soilless media because in nature, unless a, a garden is extremely heavily amended, you'll never really see organic matter reach equilibrium over, let's say, 10 or 15%. And if you, even in a highly, highly amended garden, if you left it for 10 or 20 years, it would actually drop, you know, yeah. below, let's say, 7%. So immediately I, I bifurcate into, okay, is this topsoil or soilless media? From there, I look at pH because pH really does dictate nutrient availability. It also is the first step in determining what sources of nutrients should be used. If you should use something like lime versus gypsum for calcium. Um, And then I look at the EC or the soluble salts, which is just an aggregate measure of of all of the immediately available nutrients in the soil solution. Um, And that just gives me a sense of how depleted or nutrient rich is this soil. Um, and what is the starting place? And then I go to nitrogen because usually, um, well in, in, again, in, in ecology research, nitrogen and phosphorus are often the limiting nutrients in an ecosystem. We're not necessarily talking about, uh, the same corollary with cannabis, but it is important to just note that, uh, nitrogen is critically important and everything, all metabolic functions stop if there's not sufficient nitrogen. So I, I look to see if nitrogen's at 300 parts per million or at one part per million. And that spread is extremely telling in terms of, um, what's going on in the, in the plants. And then I just work my way down through the saturated paste report. And I look at every macro and micronutrient and it's an immediate availability. And then I jump over to the, to the standard test and just see what's kind of in reserve. So yeah. I'm constantly 
sort of jumping back and forth between the two tests. And in a topsoil, I can determine the soil texture and I can determine the microaggregate structure based on the, the flow rate into the soil solution. So there's a whole number of other um, additional analyses I can see if it's a real topsoil. Yeah, and I remember doing uh, some of those analyses when I was in grad school. They were fun to do, um, to go out and get your uh, soil cores and everything and evaluate the texture and the flow rate and everything. Um, and to summarize for people listening, what you just described, you're basically you're looking to first see what nutrients are available in the soil itself. You're also looking to see, as far as the nitrogen goes, is there enough nitrogen that the plant's going to be able to, for lack of better words, to do its thing, to continue to grow so that it will even use those nutrients, um, so that those nutrients will have a, a chance to be used in the first place, and then getting into the the, um, the sort of micro level, um, trying to understand kind of ratios of, of micronutrients, what's there, what's, what's kind of missing, um, and, and filling in the gaps. Sure. And I, yeah, and this is like I mentioned earlier, I, I launched a course, I don't know, two months ago, and it's 10 hours of video content that goes deep into how I actually look at these tests. There's five modules and one of the modules shares all the targets and exactly line by line how I interpret these soil tests. And it's, it's morphed and changed over the years because I think I'm, I've, I've looked at almost 10,000 cannabis soils at this point. So, um, I'm it, I've honed in on a process that I think is really effective, but but even still, I'm making little tweaks on maybe a monthly basis just in how I interpret those yep. tests because there's there's so much to see and there's so much nuance and there's so much imperfection for that matter. Yeah. Um, that you know, one of my favorite quotes is is all models are inaccurate, but some of them are helpful. It's yeah, the same thing yeah. with soil tests. It's like they're all inaccurate to a certain degree. They're not yep. actually replicating what is happening in the rhizosphere in nature, but they're very, very helpful as a tool and as a, as a sort of metric of guidance for, for growers. So um, anyway, there's that, I, I just want to mention if any of your listeners are super interested in going deep into this, that's, that's what I cover. Yeah, absolutely. And that course, I'm glad you're mentioning it. Cause if you weren't going to, I was going to mention it later. Uh, but that's, that's one of the main reasons why I, I jumped on the opportunity to reach out to you. When I saw that you had launched a course, I was like, Oh, nice. Like I've been following this guy, you know, I'm familiar with your level of expertise uh, so that got me really excited. So absolutely, anyone listening, um, yeah, go check that out. And uh, one of the, you know, kind of spinning off on your experiences with other um, cannabis cultivators and their soils, um, are there some common misconceptions about uh, soil amending um, or just soil mixing, making the, the base soil mixes uh, that you kind of commonly run into? Yeah, absolutely. Um, where to start? I mean, <laughs> let's see. I would say that the number one mistake is, um, and the one, the number one bottleneck and limitation in, in cannabis production is just the quality of compost that we have available. Mm. Um, a, there's a number of definitions for what makes quality compost, but I see growers, um, traditionally, applying a bit too much compost to the initial base mix. So there's a, um, out of Oregon, there's a guy in, up near Portland, Clackamas Coot, well-known person in the cannabis community, came out with this wonderful soil mix for home growers probably, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. It's 33% compost. And that works extremely well in, when you get um, sort of a well-leached compost in the Willamette Valley or in any you know place in along the cascades, but it doesn't work well when you're in Oklahoma and you have this high sodium, yeah. high saline compost. So one is, I guess that maybe a higher point there is that there's just no one size fits all solution to soil because the inputs are ultimately going to vary in organic production. So that's, that's yeah. one misconception. There's a misconception around how much kelp, you, kelp meal to use. Mm -hmm. um, you don't need just huge, huge quantities of kelp. In fact, kelp has very few essential nutrients. There's highly biostimulating nutrients, um, and there's sort of biological um, stimulants. But at the end of the day, you don't need enormous amounts of kelp meal or rock dust. And in the states where heavy metals are being tested in cannabis production, that's 
um, people are starting to fail their heavy metal tests for arsenic specifically. So, mm-hmm. um, that's a misconception. I'd say another, yeah, I think I, I would argue that a misconception throughout much of the industry is that it's possible in a soilless media to never amend your soil and to just use biological mm. teas round after round. Um, what's why that can work is if you actually took a nutrient analysis of that liquid tea, you'd probably see a, it'd be really hot and really high in nutrition. So, Mm -hmm. um, yes, you in theory could just feed compost tea because there's actually really high nutrient content in those teas, but it's not the biology per se. That's, that's feeding your plants. Um, there's also a lot of nutrients in those teas. So again, it's not that you shouldn't use teas. It's not that they're not helpful. They don't bring in beneficial biology, but, um, plants need nutrients. I think that's a major misconception. And, um, Gosh, what else? In terms of amendment, I'd say a lot of people go way too heavy and a lot of people go way too light. So that's not so much a misconception as much as there's definitely a mindset from from uh, an old, I'd say a somewhat outdated mindset that you need to uh, uh, amend your soil extremely, extremely heavily. I mean, 50 pound bag of, of yeah. X and 40 pound bag of Y per yard. I mean, that's just excessive. And what um, most people, I would say, who use cannabis and definitely those who grow cannabis. One amazing thing about the industry is everyone has this general sense of trying to um, be better in terms of how we treat the earth and how we grow. But at the end of the day, if you put in a 50 pound bag of BioLive or something into a a big pot of soil, a lot of those nutrients are going to end up leaching um, into the environment and eventually into our groundwater and that changes uh, a little bit of phosphorus goes a long way yep. in a native ecosystem. So um, I'd say that's a misconception. Now that's, that's been changing in my opinion. Like people are using uh, lighter soil mixes. Um, they're feeding through the, the crop cycle, which I think is great. And um, so, yeah, I mean, those are just a few that come to mind, but if, if we keep talking, I'd probably think of about 15 more. Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll throw them in as we go. And, <laughs> and something you mentioned, I think is, is worth kind of expanding on. You mentioned, you know, like one published recommended soil mix, you know, may work for Oregon and maybe even just particular parts of Oregon, but isn't necessarily so applicable to Oklahoma. So, um, what are, well, one thing I'll, I'll ask first before I go into this, um, have you started to get approached by a lot of hemp companies now that hemp is legal and we're seeing cannabis farms uh being built at scale um all across the united states has that become something that you're uh kind of being more involved in and then the follow-up to that is what are some unique things you're seeing in different parts of the country uh, that people are having to tackle separately yeah absolutely so I, i work with a number of hemp growers the first year is legalized i worked with a lot um most of whom are actually stopped cultivating hemp because there was a major sort of price collapse in the market. Um, But I still work with a number of hemp growers. And yeah, hemp is an interesting one. I treat it the same as cannabis. Genetically, it's almost identical. It's just a percent THC differentiation. And we're growing it for flour uh, or for, you know, oil at this point. And it's not for, um, I'm I'm still waiting waiting to get the call to, you know, from a grower who's who's growing it for fiber. I'm excited for that day. I am Um, too. Yeah. You don't don't (laughs) see it yet. No, there's, and the issue is just supply chain and processing. It's, yep. it's sort of a chicken and egg issue. So, um, yeah, when it comes to what I'm seeing across the country, I love this question because there are absolutely trends. And one of the sort of magical emergent properties of my, uh, job looking at soil tests over and over and over every single day from all over the country is I do start to sort of, uh, I start to see patterns, which is really fun. And it makes sense because um, the parent material of of soil is wildly different. It's dictated by the geology of different parts of the country. And it's also dictated by not only the geology, but also humans in terms of what we're doing. So a great example of this is we mine phosphorus primarily in Florida. And then the phosphorus is shipped to the Midwest where... Uh, grain is grown to feed animals. And so then the phosphorus goes into that corn, let's say, and the corn goes and the animals eat the corn, phosphorus goes into their manure. 
And so you can find these really high phosphorus manures in these high phosphorus soils from uh, legacy phosphorus applications in the Midwest. And um, so that's just one example of how you can see these wild trends that apply across all soils from human activity. And simultaneously, um, you can see things that are, again, are based more naturally in geology. So I live in the arid West and in um, Colorado, Oklahoma, small segments of um, Texas and Florida and, and definitely Nevada. Any, any place that gets, I'd say, less than 20 inches or 25 inches of rain per year tends to have uh, calcareous soils or high salinity soils that have um, a lot of free lime in the, in the parent material. So I can look at a topsoil pH. I can look at um, the CEC, the cation exchange capacity, and pretty much tell you, pretty much narrow it down to specific regions of the country with maybe 70% accuracy. Nice. Um, there's an interesting valley in Southern Oregon near you called the Illinois Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, Spent a lot of time think, doing Oh, the Illinois there. River. Yeah. 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 So I've seen soils from the Illinois Valley that are called serpentine. So yep. they're really, really high in magnesium and um, it pushes the pH up. And at the end of the day, it's just, it tightens the soil because there's this, there's this physical characteristic in soil um, that's all about the calcium to magnesium ratio. And so it's called, uh, the, it changes the micro aggregate structure and calcium tends to flocculate clay. It opens up clay um, when magnesium can actually do the opposite. And so you can get these uh, soils that uh, collapse, the clay colloid. Um, clay is kind of like a flat, um, a flat dinner plate, if yeah. you will. And instead of stacking them end to end, they can actually collapse and stack on top of each other like they would be in the, the kitchen cabinet. Um, so I've worked with a handful of growers in the Illinois Valley. So I can look at a soil test and tell you um, if it's serpentine. And usually, as long as it's an Oregon zip code, I know it's somewhere in Southern Oregon down there. <laughs> so that's a fun trend. Um, I like, this isn't, this I can't see on a soil test, but the Willamette Valley makes some of the best Pinot Noir yeah. wines because they're volcanic soils that lead to really bold, rich flavors. So that's Hills. an interesting phenomenon yeah. to me. Yep, exactly. Um, and let's see in the, there's sort of sandy soils all over. I, I, I'm kind of focusing on Oregon cause, cause that's where you're living. Um, in outside of bend, I see sandy soils, mm-hmm. wonderful groundwater, very clean water. Oh, that's another thing I can, um, speaking of geology and how that influences soil chemistry and plant health, I get a lot of water irrigation water tests, which I highly yeah. recommend. Um, and I can pretty much tell you if your water's from a well or if it's surface water because of mm-hmm. the, the mineral content, because wells, you know, the, the water runs through the, the groundwater and the parent material, and it picks up a lot of minerals in the, in the parent material. So wells are often really, really high in things you don't want and, um, surface water from, you know, s- snow on the mountains or from rain tends to be much cleaner because it hasn't, um, picked up a lot of those minerals as, as water is sort of the, the universal solvent, it, it picks things right. up. So, yeah. um, yeah, I'll stop there, but I could go on and on. I love these trends because it's interesting every, and this is, this goes back to your point. Every soil is different, which means every, what that soil needs to optimize photosynthesis and plant health is going to be different. So there's this, the same thing happens in the gardening forums online where someone gives a recipe for, you know, the best, the, the best tomatoes you grow with, with a tablespoon of Epsom salt and X, yeah. Y, and Z. And it's like, that's a recipe that would do very well in a low magnesium soil, but would be very horrible in the Illinois Valley. So. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's funny you brought up the, the serpentine thing. Cause that's, I, I was a botanist with the Bureau of Land Management for a short little time and spent a lot of time primarily focused on the Illinois Valley the Illinois Valley studying the unique plant life that grows there. Um, so oh, there's, interesting. There's just tons of endemics and, and different things that uh, rare, uh, all sorts of rare plants that uh, grow in the Illinois Valley just because of the, uh, the serpentine soils. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just super fascinating. I spent a ton of time looking back on it. I, I don't know. It's a little weird now. Cause if you remember from living out here, the Illinois Valley, I mean, it's kind of an area that's sort of like, 
the real wild wild west like there's not really any yeah, totally. there's really no police there's no anything it's just wild and uh, yeah, i spent a lot of time either by myself or with one other person just roaming the wilderness uh out there looking for interesting plants to try to collect their seeds and save their germplasm that was my main job um but it, <laughs> it's super super fascinating to see i mean first of all serpentinite looks very interesting um it has this kind of greenish blue coloring to it and it, it, huh. break, it breaks really easily. Um, but yeah, and then the plants and, and even like mushrooms and stuff, you see just really unique populations compared to if you go just a little south and you get more into like the granite plutons of like Ashland and all of that. Or if you go into the Cascades, you get into a different area. And that's one thing that kind of drew me to this region was all of these sort of geological uh you know situations coming together it forms these very unique soil differences which then results in very unique plant differences which then results in very unique uh you know animal differences and especially in terms of like insects and stuff um so it's been a very just fascinating place to study biology um and wow. and so even in this yeah. in this microcosm i recognize that like you can go five miles in one direction and run into very different soil. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess coming back around to the, the hemp thing, are you noticing as my experience in cannabis cultivation is that generally, um, for most like adult use and medical cannabis, uh, people often are not growing in their native soil. Uh, they're making their, like you mentioned, they're going with soilless mixes. They're, they're making their own. They usually have these, uh, very it depends on the grower but often they use these very large like soft pots you know that they'll kind of dump a mix out of at the end of the growing season and refill next year um, but hemp has been particularly different and and part of it is the scale i think and so one thing i wanted to sort of talk to you about if, if there's anything interesting you've noticed between cannabis cultivators that are that have tried to kind of make the move from kind of smaller uh, garden cultivation to at scale, really farm level production and uh, issues that they've run into uh, related to their soil. Maybe they were accustomed to growing one way and amending a certain way when they were at a small scale, but as they're trying to scale up into acreage, uh, maybe some of those kind of ideas don't hold up as well. Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say the first thing that comes to mind is the transition, the scale transition. I've had to make it in my life, which is how do you go from, you know, large garden to farm scale? And the, yeah. the, the first thing that comes to mind is equipment. Yep. So, you know, in the garden, you're doing everything by hand and maybe not everything, but that that's sort of the first approach is, okay, there's weeds. I'm going to come through and I'm going to hand weed, or I'm going to get a hoe or a flame weeder or something. Hemp production at scale is all about equipment and you can look across agriculture large growers aren't, aren't there. Everything is done with a tractor. So, and, and sourcing implements is the hardest thing and, mm -hmm. and, and collecting a network of other growers where, you know, where to get a disc, you know, where to get a plow, you know, where to get a harvester, you know, where, you know, a cedar, whatever it may be. That's, um, that's a transition. The other transition I would say would, is the difference between building organic matter with compost and manure. Mm -hmm. Um, or let me put it this way, building organic matter with large amounts of organic inputs, whether it's hay, uh, or, you know, straw mulch or composts or huge amounts of inputs versus building organic matter with cover crops. Yeah. And so I help a lot of, uh, hemp growers start, um, building organic matter with cover crops. It's a more long-term, slower and I would argue more effective approach to building true humus, the, the sort of recalcitrant, um, hard to decompose organic matter that actually is going to feed your plants in the long term. So that's that's one is cover cropping versus compost or, or organic inputs. Um, the other would be in terms of feeding, most uh, smaller cannabis growers would uh, drench their plants. Mm -hmm. And so drenching is essentially mixing liquid nutrients, teas, whatever, and um, pumping them out of, out of a 275 gallon tote or a 55 gallon drum or whatever it may be and, um, applying them 
to their plants, usually with just by hand with a watering wand, if you're a medical yeah. grower or home grower at scale and with hemp production, it's all about fertigation. So you need, um, big mix tanks with fairly well-built customized fertigation equipment to inject nutrients into your irrigation system. Um, that's super important. The other thing is fertility budget. So, uh, yeah. if you did the math on the fertility budget for cannabis production, it would be, uh, let's just say 10 years ago, I don't even know, 20,000 bucks an acre, or $50,000 an acre. I believe that hemp production should contract down toward, um, one to $2,000 an acre, which means that you can't use branded nutrients. You can't use, um, really anything <laughs> except raw mineral amendments and free manure, um, or at least really inexpensive manure. Now you can break that exception or that rule if you own the land and you are investing in the long-term fertility sure, and, yeah. and the long-term health of the, of the land, but you need to see it as an investment in your land, not in, in, as not a short-term an investment in your hemp. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And hopefully the hemp will pay for it, but, um, more times than not, it doesn't, or at least in the last few years, that's sort of what I've seen. So yeah, hemp's a tricky one. It, it very, very quickly, in my opinion, um, went from a high value crop where growers were telling me, cause I don't, I don't get into the economics. Yeah. I just, I just sort of focus on soil health and what plant needs are based on the grower's fertility budget. And the first year, nobody had a fertility budget. They said, get these plants to yield as heavy as we possibly can. So the fertility budget was not a thousand bucks an acre. Um, within two or three years, I'm not, I, I mean, it's, it's, it, it went from a high value cannabis like crop to nearly a commodity crop. Yeah. And that, that contraction in such a short period of time, I think has been really painful yes. and I really yeah. give it to the guys who are, who are out there going for it. Um, but I would say that that's like the most important thing to really understand getting into it. Yeah, and, and you're highlighting something that multiple cultivate hemp cultivators have told me, which is, um, you know, oh, I thought, you know, the price of land was, was X and we're going to fit this many, you know, Y number of plants in the ground. And we know that from traditional cannabis cultivation, we might get, you know, at least a pound or at least, you know, maybe a few pounds of, of uh, you know, flower material off of that that we can then extract or do whatever with. Um, and they, they think they have the numbers down and then going back to the very first thing you really said, which is just how cannabis plants can just continue to take and take and take nutrition. Um, uh, a lot of farmers that even just trying to scale up to like two acres or three acres have realized, um, that, yeah, if you're, if you're trying to buy name brand, you know, what you're accustomed to using in the garden, you know, your, your trusted name brand stuff, you drive yourself broke. Um, and then especially when you have the price fall out, the oversaturation of the market that we're seeing now, um, these economics really, really matter. And they, they didn't matter. I think in the like you know, during the 2014 farm bill, when the pilot programs were going, it, it didn't really matter, uh, so much, but then when the floodgates opened after, uh, 2018, um, it's just a, a very different situation. And yeah, you, absolutely. Just, you just touched on one thing that um, I want to make sure we, we talk about before we wrap up, which is building, um, you know, building the um, organic matter layers, the humus and everything. I think, uh, at least I, if I remember correctly, when I took soil science, and it's now been quite a while, but when I was in grad school and, we took, and I took soil science, I remember learning... And I don't remember the details, which is why I'm just going to kind of bring it up and see where you go with it. But I remember learning something about how like chop and drop and that those sort of techniques um, often can backfire um, because nutrients can easily leave the site um, and that sort of thing. And I remember walking away from that class being like, oh, man, OK, a lot of the permaculture stuff I learned is much more complicated than I thought it was. And I can't just kind of grow crops, chop them down and wish for the best and do that every year. Uh, does that resonate with you at all? Am I totally remembering that wrong? And what are some of those nuances that tie into trying to um, build those layers of your soil, uh, especially if you're trying to do it by using cover crops? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And you have a good memory to think back that there's definitely some validity there. Um, well, let's see. Okay, so the, to, to start, there are a number of different soil health principles that are related to building soil organic matter. And they can all be distilled down into essentially two things. One is to minimize disturbance. And the second is to maximize photosynthesis. And so anything that creates significant disturbance, you know, deep tillage being the worst or um, rotary tillage, you know, being bad, which don't get me wrong, I, I till my garden. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying that it's bad to till. I'm just saying that when you till and disturb your soil, you will um, break apart the soil aggregates, expose organic matter to oxygen and microbes, essentially um, eat that organic matter and respire the CO2 into the, into the atmosphere. So that's number one. So minimizing disturbance is, is critically important. The second thing is maximizing photosynthesis because the, um, and this is what, this is where it gets a little more nuanced. So, so the plants photosynthesize and they grow either above ground biomass to your point, sort of, you know, chop and drop, or they, they grow roots. Right. And then they, they take anywhere from five to 40% of their photosynthates and they push it out through their roots in the form of root exudates, which are sugars that feed the soil biology. And I know five to 40% is a big range, but that's, that's what yeah, I always vary. read. So, yeah. yeah. And I think it can vary by species and about yeah. a number of things. So, um, they have found since you were in grad school, this is like in the last few years, there's been a huge update on soil organic matter science. And they found that that roots, not shoots, are the mm. primary producers of high quality, long lasting soil organic matter compounds that are going to be, they're sort of preferable. And mycorrhizal fungi in the root system in general um, and glomalin production yeah. are, are the most sort of long lasting sources of organic carbon. So the, the point of me saying this is that you could bring in a bunch of compost and put it on the surface of the soil. And to your point, a lot of that nitrogen would actually volatilize off um, through as, as ammonia. Yeah. And a lot of that carbon would be consumed very quickly and, and respired as CO2. And it, a very, very, very small percentage of that would actually end up in, in 10 or 20 or 100 years as soil organic matter. And so the preferable way to build it, if, you, if, if you're in it for the long haul, is to, is to grow roots, not shoots, and to maximize, you know, and to grow crops that have huge root systems and to make sure they're super healthy and photosynthesizing super well and they have not only all their nutrient requirements, but water as an even more important um, uh, part of the equation to be optimized throughout the entire season. That's really the name of the game. So you're optimizing photosynthesis, you're minimizing disturbance, you're growing shoots, not roots. And um, you know, it's not to say that above ground growth doesn't matter because it totally does. And I, I chop and drop, I chop and dropped my cover crop, but um, the only reason I did that was because I needed to, to, to reseed it. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes chopping the shoots will stimulate root growth. So, yeah. um, yeah, anyway, that's kind of the, that's kind of the software update when it comes to, to building organic matter in the long term. Now I'll add one more thing, which is you can apply a bunch of compost or a bunch of manure or a bunch of straw or mulch or whatever, take a soil test and see your organic matter go shooting up. And that's because they're just uh, doing a test called loss on ignition, where they ah. they essentially burn all this. They burn the soil at 2,000 degrees or something crazy, and and then just measure the amount of CO2 that's that's lost or yeah. combusted. And so you're just that organic matter number. You may have a lot of carbon in the system, but it's not truly organic matter. A chunk of wood is not the same as organic matter. But on but on a soil test, it's going to show the same. So you can. I see this all the time, like, you know, 15% organic matter in this amazing garden. It's like, that's probably just compost from the last five years. And, and if, again, if you let it sit for 15 years, that number would just go drop down as those microbes, uh, consume the compost. Yeah. And I, I'm so glad you brought up glomalin because that's something, um, as a, a biologist, something I always have fun teaching people about, because they usually 
um, or unaware of it, but um, uh, people may have heard of it as soil glue as well. It's often referred to as soil glue because it, yeah, it, it's it's uh, produced by our muscular mycorrhizal fungi, and um, the glomalin helps uh, keep uh, soil constituents together. It helps prevent um, erosion and all sorts of other things. I, I wrote a children's book called A Toadstool's Treasures uh, to introduce kids to mycology, and one of the things in the book is the kids go underground and they um they see this fungus on these roots that's exuding the stuff and they learn that it's glomalin but uh, i'm stoked that you brought that up um yeah but now that 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 makes um perfect sense uh roots not shoots and i guess chop and drop could serve other functions like you're mentioning you know stimulating root growth or maybe if you're wanting to cover the soil to prevent um yes. evaporation that sort of thing um, yes. you could get that utility out, but if you're trying to chop and drop solely to build, um, you know, organic matter that that's not the, that shouldn't be the focus that you've, you've got to think about the roots. And that makes perfect, perfect sense. And that does harmonize with, uh, you know, it's like all coming back to me now, <laughs> all these things I learned like, uh, over 10 years ago. Um, but, um, that's a great point that, that chop and drop is, is, is amazing for weed suppression, for moisture retention, for uh, keeping so you know armor on the soil, and all those things will indirectly lead to, you know, the mechanisms which build soil organic matter. So it's not to say don't do it; it's to say it's to say just do it for the right reasons. And that's yeah. what that the, the one takeaway is context. Context is everything in farming, and so just as the, there's no nutrient recipes that work across the board, it's the same thing with practices and timing and everything. It's like, it's impossible to, there's no one size fits all solution because at the context of every farm is different. The availability of compost or manure, their fertility budget, their crop type, their soil type, their climate, the amount of precipitation yeah. they get, the historical context of what's been grown there. And most importantly, the scale. So all these things sort of dictate what should actually be done. And so to your point, chop and trot, drop is a great technique, but not just specifically if you're trying to build organic matter. Yeah. And and the other thing that comes to mind, too, once again, going back to our friend Glomalin, um, but, you know, you mentioned um, at one point we were talking the role of phosphorus and something I've wondered is if you're trying to build soil in this way and you're trying to rely on cover crops and things to help you with that i would imagine just going back to like my old mycological uh science understanding from back in the day uh, phosphorus is a big driver of whether mycorrhizal fungi will actually um have anything to do with your roots or not uh, a lot of especially our muscular mycorrhizal fungi particularly are very sensitive to to phosphorus and that's one of the big uh benefits of a plant um, coming into a relationship with the mycorrhizal fungus is to unlock phosphorus out of the soil. And so I, just to add on to the complexity of everything that we're highlighting here, it's just like there's so many different little things that, that are influencing everything. And even even using plants that um, uh, maybe traditionally have good root structure and everything, you still have to go back to, like you're saying at the beginning, what's the chemistry, not just... Uh, you know what's the crop and what's the texture what's the biology what's the chemistry um and how is that going to affect the biological side um and it's just kind of a wheel that's always always turning um that's a great point that's a wonderful point and it's true that in well again in the ecosystem research mm -hmm. and and you're right on point is when there's when there's enough soluble phosphorus it essentially signals to mycorrhizae that it, it's it's sufficient and there's not there's not good colonization. The same thing happens because I've been thinking a lot about nitrogen because mm -hmm. just geochemical cycles, um, humans have impacted so greatly. And there's something called the planetary boundaries framework that shows that, yes, we are, we are outside of the framework of, of a safe amount of carbon in the atmosphere, but we're way, we're even further outside of, of the, the boundary of nitrogen and phosphorus we're putting into the environment. And so I've been thinking a lot about, well, how do we reduce nitrogen inputs in agriculture? And it doesn't matter if it's conventional or organic, how do we reduce nitrogen use? And there's this, there's this paradox I've been thinking about, which there are actually a lot of free living uh, nitrogen fixing organisms in the soil, not just, um, not just in legumes, but just throughout the soil. Well, as soon as there's a nitrogen application of any kind, even with manure, 
those yeah. things shut down. So, so we have to feed our plants nitrogen, but in doing so, we shut off a lot of the natural processes that would do it naturally. Um, and the same thing that it, that you're speaking to with, with phosphorus, uh, mobilization from, from fun fungus. So, um, anyway, I, I thought I'd throw that in there and to bring it back to the hemp conversation. That's why I think, you know, the contraction of prices has meant that growers should get most of the expensive inoculants out of their program, especially if, if, um, they, there's not a very specific reason to apply them. Yeah. And, and there's a little bit of research that, that also shows, you know, that stressing cannabis plants, um, ultimately may result in more favorable, uh, chemical profiles in the resins, um, and that sort of thing. I mean, um, you know, some of the complexity of terpenoids we see in plants as a result of stress response, um, and that sort yep. of thing. So it's not, not always a bad thing to let your plants, uh, fight a little bit for survival. And ultimately when you think about like breeding and stuff, you know, you don't necessarily want to pamper plants all the time. You want to try to find plants that are hardy, um, and that can do more on their own and, and yeah, trying to bring this all back around. If you can get your, your fertility budget improved by trying to find better genetics that can, that don't need so much pampering and, um, and that sort of thing. Um, it's better on so many levels, environmentally, financially, um, and ultimately the crop, um, may benefit as well. So, um, I think that's an excellent place to, to start to wrap things up here. I hope that everyone listening, um, I know we, we've kind of bounced around in a lot of different angles, but I think it all connects very well together and, and highlights just, um, I don't know the nuances, the complexity and why taking a, an analytical approach to soil is so important and that there's so much to balance. Um, and it can be very overwhelming for anyone that's trying to get into cultivation, that's trying to wrap their heads around these things for the first time. So to know that there's a resource, you know, like the soil doctor out there that can help just make sense of the data and provide some context and framework for, uh, thinking about these things, um, is incredibly valuable. So, um, thanks so much for the work that you do and helping everybody, you know, make sense of all of that. And in these last couple of minutes, I'll kind of hand off the platform to you, let people know, um, where to learn more about your work, how to connect with you on social media, anything that you want to share with the world, uh, the platform's yours. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, for anyone who's interested, my website is soildoctorconsulting.com and you can order all the soil tests plant tests, water tests there. And I can walk you through exactly uh, what to do using these analyses. So my, my consulting fee is included in those tests um, anywhere oh, nice. between 20 and $40. So very approachable. Um, and if you're a cannabis cultivator that really wants to, to master cannabis soil, um, sign up for my course. It's 10 hours of self-guided video content that goes really deep into soil and crop nutrition um, it's intended to really help growers become self-sufficient and stop guessing. That's sort of the mantra yeah. is stop guessing, start using data and precision to save money and get higher yields and better quality. And, um, that's really the best place if people really want to be serious about, um, cannabis cultivation and optimizing plant nutrition and plant health. So, uh, those are the two things. Otherwise you can, you can follow my content on social media, soil underscore doctor. I try to uh, create videos. I usually do a bunch of them all at once and then I get distracted yep. by something else. So I might be silent for a while. Um, but that's, those are the, the platforms to reach me. Everything's on my website and, um, yeah, Jason, I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Thanks so much for being willing to come on. It was a fun conversation and we might have to follow up. I'm working on another podcast that's not cannabis related. Um, but some of this content fits right on in there and it kind of harkens back to some of my um, biology work, but we might have to catch up again and, and, uh, kind of talk about the big picture of soil, you know, even beyond cannabis, um, um, and, uh, how folks can, can really start to wrap their heads around it. Because, I mean, if, if you can't understand soil, I feel like, you know, as far as tackling a lot of environmental problems that we have, um, we're not going to get very far. Uh, so, um, right. soil is such a huge piece of that. So, yeah, thanks again, Bryant, for coming on. It was a great conversation and uh, funny all the little uh, um, 
uh, details there. Had no idea that you lived in Ashland for a time and everything. That's awesome. Um, so we'll definitely have to catch up again later. But um, yeah, everyone listening, as always, if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, uh, find us at CACpodcast.com or hunt us down on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn and YouTube. Um, and with that, stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by the generous support of fans just like you. Find out how you can support the show and get access to exclusive content, merchandise discounts, and more at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. If you want to learn even more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book at cacpodcast.com slash book, or check out our Curious About Cannabis online courses and educational events at the Natural Learning Academy at learn.naturalledu.com. Thank you.